Dear FinTech people, welcome back to Nordic FinTech Magazine. Today we have a very special guest joining us all the way from the West Coast in the US. We have with us Andrea Cates, who is a seasoned executive based in San Francisco, who, uh, who for many years has worked with incumbent companies, many of them financial institutions, in helping them getting to next in their transformation journeys. Andrea has created an actionable framework that helps organizations transform from a strategic, operational, cultural and skills-based perspective. And she brings decades of experience working across virtually every single industry. I am certain you will be blown away by the insights that she shares with us in this interview, many of which have been gathered from her experience in working with some of the world's most innovative and successful companies. Andrea, thank you so much for taking time to speak to us. Please, before we start, tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Andrea Cates and I live in Silicon Valley, but I work globally and I specialize in something called Get To Next. And what that means is that there's lots of teams that see rapid change and they don't quite know how to activate and, and use innovation and rational analysis to figure out where to place their bets. And so I've been working in Denmark, interestingly, for about 10 years on a regular basis doing residencies. But I work in San Francisco and I really help teams figure out how to be great leaders in times of huge disruption. Great. So let's start talking about Silicon Valley. I think with the emergence of many Silicon Valley companies like Facebook or Uber, Airbnb, etc., we saw a very strong shift in market dynamics where companies moved from wanting to make vertical value chain acquisitions or even horizontal ones to becoming orchestrators of the entire value chain. So tell us what changed? I think one of the biggest things that's changed is the shift in information transparency. Because about 20 years ago, we could be competitors that were winning the game simply by having more information or by virtue of the fact that our systems were sort of not transparent to our competitors. But then the age of information came and suddenly we could see the pricing. We could see everybody's supply chain. We could see all of the information about customers. And it was much more open, the, the ability to see each other. And so what that meant was that we had to shift from winning in, at a competitive market based on being better than competitors in our own industries that we could see, for instance, in banking, as long as we were you know, the fastest snail in the snail race, we could really win. And by the way, that was a friend from ING that gave me that phrase. Um, but, but then suddenly, once we realized that the information was much more readily available, much more obvious, we couldn't just put in an, an ATM machine at our bank and say, we're going to win the market. We had to start uncovering the unmet needs of customers. We had to start looking more broadly at how we could not just compete against competitors in our line of sight, but really look out and anticipate what might be the emerging force that we needed to get ahead of. And I think about ways that companies are doing that in today's market. And that's the big difference is to think about rather than competitor, you know, competitive advantage in the old mindset to what I call like omni-channel or more of a diverse business model where you're not just putting a product to market and serving a customer, but there's a lot of combinations of how that might really work. 
Now, this was some incredible innovation at the business model level, but was there organizational or cultural factors that led to this change in how we do business? Well, I'll, I'll start with something that I think is really important about this. Um, you know, that from an organization and culture perspective, I think the first thing was a real emphasis on customer empathy that came out of the design thinking school. And understanding that if we didn't understand and anticipate the needs of our customers at the core, we would never be able to really serve the need. We'd be serving a product to a generic person and really be, you know, not be able to have huge traction. So I think the biggest thing that changed in a culture was listening, not just selling, not just telling. So we moved from advertisements that were sort of slogan based or, you know, I'm going to sell you something based on my de description of my offering to saying, you know, we have some discernment. What are the things that you're missing? What are the things that you as a customer need that you might not even be able to articulate? And I'll use an example of that. I mean, I think about Rappi, which is a company from Latin America that I really admire. They're in the fintech world now. But they started off as a sandwich delivery service in Latin America, and people on bicycles would deliver sandwiches to people and, and lunches, you know, it was a very easy uh, delivery service. But they started to uncover step by step unmet customer needs. So the customers would get their food and they might not have cash and they didn't have a payment system and they might not have Square. So then they're thinking, okay, well, how am I going to pay for this? So, the, so Rappi realized that they needed to, based on this unmet customer need, be more of a transaction payments company. And then they realized if they were going to expand, they needed to think more as an omni-channel, you know, be able to serve the restaurants that were creating the food and the customers that needed the food. And so they needed channels and transactional capabilities on all sides of this market. And so what I realized is this culture of watching customers, being able to discern what's the next thing that's missing? Where is there friction in the system? Where are the customers wanting to be served even better? And that cultural capability, the ability to listen, to discern, and to uncover customer needs, that's the big cultural shift that puts companies ahead in today's market. Right, so we went through a situation where companies shifted from wanting to push their products into the market to them learning to listen to what the market was implicitly telling them. And this, this developed discernment um, allowed them to know which products to develop to satisfy those new market needs, right? I think that's the big shift, is that we stop being, you know, assembly line product, here's our product, please buy it competing against the other obvious competitors to this exactly that. The ability to see what need isn't met and develop services and products and business models that serve that unmet need. And that's a huge difference, especially in fintech, where it's not obvious that a transaction that seems fine, you know, you're my bank customer and I'm just gonna keep you as my bank customer and what's missing, absolutely nothing, we would think, and then suddenly we realized that, you know, customers had other needs that weren't being fully met. And that's when they started looking not just at other banks, but at other industries. 
What was Amazon doing to take friction out of online payments? What was Google doing to be able to help you with more sophisticated search capabilities? What were all of these social media platforms doing to communicate with us, not just as a slogan, but as a real relationship in real time? And I think that's really a big and important basic foundation of why we needed to start thinking as ecosystems. Now that was clearly a, a foundational change, but it sounds like the transformation came almost exclusively from, from challengers. So how have incumbent companies in Western markets responded to this? One of my favorite insights is that incumbents can reinvent. Incumbents can be at least as innovative, if not more so as startups. And what incumbents are really good at when they do it well is scale. So they have the, the, the sort of burden of scale. You know, they have a lot of customers, a lot of products, a lot of responsibility, a lot of stakeholders. But when done right, incumbents can really reinvent. And I think about the power of that reinvention as a force multiplier. So any in innovation that an incumbent comes up with can automatically go out to many, many customers. They have at their advantage an existing huge customer base, lots of data, history, the ability to understand pricing, a supply chain that they've had for years, the ability to understand so much, so many patterns in the market. And so I'll give you an example. I mean, there's a company that I love in Sweden called Husqvarna, and they're an incumbent. They're a really big company. They're a multi-complex company. And one of the things that they came up with is something called Digital Park Life where they imagined a new way of parks and outdoor areas being served by data. And it, uh, it becomes a platform where landscapers and people who want to enjoy parks and people who are city planners can all have sort of a mutual playground where the digital information that's coming out of the park in terms of the best way to keep the plants alive, all of the parts of the sustainability and ecosystem data can be shared by many, many parties. And so Husqvarna doesn't have to own all of that information, but they can supply it, they can digitize it, and they can use it as a way to interconnect multiple parties. And they're an incumbent that's thinking really ahead of the curve. There's also an example I love in the finance and the fintech world, which is Saxo Bank. And although they've been around since the early 90s, they are in a sense an incumbent. They are not just a startup. And what I like about Saxo Bank is to get back to the culture, they realized that they needed to have more diverse thoughts. They needed to have more opinions, more perspectives at the table if they were going to really understand emerging customer needs. And so what Saxo Bank did as an incumbent is reinvent by focusing on their culture. And as you know, Ashok Kalam Swamy and I have talked about incumbent reinvention before. We're both members of Copenhagen FinTech's Global Advisory Board. And we've exchanged ideas about this. You know, how do you develop trust, psychological safety, and what I call the four quadrants of innovation to really help Saxo Bank be ahead of its curve constantly so that there's a flywheel of innovation built into their culture. Now, I'd like to pick up on a term that you used just a second ago. You talked about ecosystem thinking. Can you tell us more about what ecosystem thinking is? 
It used to be when I was in business school and when I've taught at, at, at business schools for years that we didn't think about ecosystems. We thought about, first we thought about competitive advantage. That was kind of the way we were first taught. We had SWOT analysis, strength, weakness, opportunities, threat. And it was always from a singular perspective, our company against the world. And in the West, a lot of times it was kind of a winner take all. It was a military, you know, we have to win in this market. Well, that has changed. As I said before, the data transparency means that everybody sees what we're doing. So we don't have any trade secrets. I mean, we have IP, but we don't have any secrets that are completely invisible to our competitors. And the second thing is that we can't, in a world as fast moving and complex as we live in, we can't own every part of the value chain that we have to interact with. So we've moved from supply chain, where it was all about me, you know, my company, my four walls, how a value chain or a supply chain can serve my needs and my customer needs, very linear, to a very much more combinatorial approach, where we realize that there's a network effect, there's a butterfly effect, where something that I do might have an intended or an unintended consequence within a group of companies and a group of customers, and also the stakeholders are different. But is ecosystem thinking just about reorganizing players in an industry or is there an opportunity for further economies to be created? The biggest example of an ecosystem is, I would say, like Airbnb. They have created a network of people who have spaces to rent, people who want to stay in a hotel alternative, and the ancillary services. For instance, Airbnb, I don't think, owns the cleaning services that people use on a local basis to clean the houses. And yet, without that part of the ecosystem, Airbnb couldn't exist. So they not only rise the tide, right? So the rising tide lifts the ships, so everybody gets a chance to have access to Airbnbs, but they also create new waterways. They have this new waterway that's a side part of the ecosystem that they don't have to control, but that's very critical to the overall success. So there's a mutuality to this. There's a combination of things. And innovation can come from many places in the ecosystem, like, you know, Airbnb experiences is a great example. You know, during COVID, suddenly people were buying experiences because they couldn't travel. That innovation can come from lots of places in the ecosystem. And with the exponential growth that we've seen from ecosystem organizations, will there still be place in the market for supply chain-based business models? Well, let me first talk a little bit about the different types of ecosystems. Um, because there is a role for supply chain, but I think that there's a bigger role for supply chain within these ecosystems. So I'll, I'll answer your question first. I mean, yes, I think that there's a role for supply chain. Supply chain, I mean, I was just reading yesterday that Neon is in short supply because Ukraine was one of the places that is the major producer of it. It's a, it's a byproduct of their steel industry. And so, of course, if you have no supply of a key component of something that you're working on, if you're a manufacturer, if you're a bank, supply chain is critical. You know, you need to be able to service a customer from the beginning to the end. And it's very important to have supply chain. And if you're a payments company, you need to have cybersecurity as part of your supply chain. You need to have access to customers. You need to have a point-to-point -point connection. So there's absolutely a need for supply chain. 
But I also think that we need to move beyond that and think about um, a minimum viable ecosystem. That's the first one. Minimum viable ecosystem, which is sort of interrelationship among these supply chain and, and vendors so that you have trust, so that you have good relationships, so that when there's short supply, you have alternatives. So that's the first one. Um, and the second type of ecosystem is one where it's a maximum value ecosystem. And I think about the relationships where my world and your world coming together is one plus one is greater than two. And a great example in fintech is Lunar and Astralis. You know, Lunar is one of, I think it's one of the unicorns that came out of the, uh, the Copenhagen fintech world. And the ability to have unbanked gamers, you know, people who are playing games a lot, really tough market for traditional banks. Incumbent banks might have a cultural disconnect between what a traditional bank stands for and what the gaming spirit is all about, the culture clash. But I thought it was really brilliant that Lunar created much more of an ecosystem. So there was already through Astralis, a gaming community and a gaming set of connections and trusted relationships. And that ecosystem, plus Lunar's capability in terms of payments and transactions, came together to create a maximum value ecosystem where both of them gained way more than they would have just by combining the two in a supply chain approach. And then there's a third type of ecosystem that I think is really important, which is this maximum impact ecosystem. And I've seen leaders, especially recently, come together to have a broader purpose. And because of their broader purpose, they have an ecosystem that stands for something bigger. So for instance, if there's a cybersecurity standard that we all need to adhere to, right now there's a lot of concern about cybersecurity. Well, leaders in fintech and banking and lots of the payments groups and the people in blockchain and cryptocurrency, people are insecure about whether their, their money is safe. And so the ability for people to join forces and create a maximum impact vision together, even if they don't all benefit equally, creates this maximum impact ecosystem where you can say, we are going to lead a movement in trust. We are going to lead a movement in security. We are going to lead a movement in transactions that you understand in cryptocurrency. And when leaders come together with that broader purpose of leading a movement around something like this, I call that a maximum impact ecosystem. Okay. I think it's really exciting to hear about all the different types of ecosystems and the opportunities they present to create exponential value. But I also know that you speak a lot about incumbent reinvention and this idea of getting to next. At the same time, we know that incumbent organizations have a, a pretty poor track record when it comes to successfully completing transformation. So can you tell us how incumbent companies can shift business models towards an ecosystem model, especially when the basis of their, of their success has been mostly founded on this value chain model? It's a really perfect question because it's what I've been looking at for three years, is what it really takes for incumbents to successfully reinvent and combine the innovation of a startup, the agility of a software company, the speed of our market, and people talk about disruption, but actually 
to be in a state of what I call perpetual refresh, for them to be in a state of constant readiness to move forward and not get stuck anywhere because whatever incumbents are doing today by definition will be challenged tomorrow. And so I have a, an approach that I've invented to address this that I call get to next. And it has to do with not using SWOT analysis, not trying to do predictive analytics, but instead to envision the world that you're really picturing that needs to change. What is it that needs to change? Envision. To expand it based on what business models might be applicable, what cross-industry insights you might learn from other industries. For instance, in fintech, you might learn from the automotive industry. You know, mobility has done a lot of innovation where they weren't just acting like the old conveyor belt incumbents. So changing the mindset. The third is to start building, and that can be something like the lean startup methods that a lot of startups use. Incumbents can use them successfully with adaptation. And then to be able to engage. And that's where engaging with an ecosystem by listening, by discerning, and by thinking of the equation as not just winner takes all, but the win-win-win combinatorial impact of an ecosystem. And then finally, the hardest is activate. And incumbents can get all of their stakeholders to write something that I call commitment narratives. Everyone will take on change for different reasons. And leaders within existing organizations need to lead their teams through the activation so that everyone has their heart and their soul and their mind into this new change. And that's really how you have an incumbent reinvent. Envision, expand, build, engage, activate. And, and in this process, what are the main challenges that you see incumbents facing when they're trying to innovate at, at the business model level? That's super easy. Backward facing metrics. So if we're always coming to a meeting and comparing these new initiatives with something that has to do with our past performance, or if we're always taking our new initiatives and measuring them against initiatives that have been in place for years and years and are kind of our cash cow, it's completely unfair. And every time I sit in a meeting with what I call room A and room B, right? Room A is the new stuff and room B is the stuff that's been around forever. And they're like, well, you know, what's your quarterly earnings report or what's your IRR on that? And unfortunately, that's where the rubber meets the road. And so to that, to that point, it's really important to have different innovation metrics so that you allow these new initiatives to take flight and get to scale and don't kill them before they've had a chance to blossom. Okay, so I get that we need a different set of metrics that accurately reflect the results of this new way of thinking. But what about skills? What skills do organizations need to have in order to successfully master this new ecosystem model thinking? The, the biggest skill is co-creation. The ability to not have all of our ideas be the best. Right? It's not only us that comes up with good ideas. When we understand within an ecosystem, and I've done a lot of work in the mobility space, where the incumbent you know, has all of the history 
50 plus years, probably 100 years of history with this major auto manufacturer that I've been working with. But when it came to a cybersecurity pro project, we had to listen to a lot of startups. We had to listen to a lot of new players. A lot of the senior engineers were having to listen to people who were, you know, 20 years younger than they were. And yet it was that mindset melding that was really critical to the mobility company being able to embrace autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, and all of these really incredible initiatives. It's the same in fintech. I mean, I've been very, very impressed with the ways that a lot of companies have thought through a different mindset. So for instance, Chainalysis, you know, we're all confused about fintech and cryptocurrency and, and ways to do blockchain. And yet a company like Chainalysis that came out of, once again, originally the Copenhagen fintech world, they realized that they needed to educate the whole ecosystem around these capabilities. And so to take on something like that, to really be able to um, reinvent not just yourself and view yourself as the center of your ecosystem, but let all players be educated simultaneously. That's how the innovations will happen in cryptocurrency, in blockchain, and in all of these new technology capabilities and cybersecurity that we all need to think about and be able to be really good at mastering. Now let's switch over to sustainability, which is a big concern to Nordic countries. Often the accelerated growth that we've seen associated with exponential organizations is equated to this idea of expansive and unchecked capitalism. What do you say to critics, to critics of the ecosystem model on sustainability grounds? Well, I believe that every leader has a responsibility to account for capitalism and that there is no place for unchecked capitalism. They call that greed and it can't last. Short term, yes. Long term, no. Within an ecosystem, it's very clear because you can't have a win-win-win-win if one person is sucking all the resources. You can't have a, and by the way, the customer and the planet and the children and the next generation are part of this consideration set. So that's the first rule. No leader is allowed to do that. The second rule is something that I've seen as inspiration through a project that Søren Jorgensen has at Stanford University. And I've been working with them as an advisor to work with people from 65 countries in what it really takes to have responsible digital leadership, especially in fintech. And responsible digital leadership means that you need to be proactive and deliberate in trust, in the responsibility for the planet, in the use of resources, and also in the transparency of your information with your public. Truth matters. Values ma matter, and true leaders are the ones that are able to communicate authentically. We can't get away with slogans. We can't get away with speeches written by PR people. And so I believe that that's the first thing, is that we really need to take on all of these qualities of responsible digital leadership in fintech and in financial services. And at the core, the currency is trust. What will it take for customers to trust us? And in, in the case of financial services, it's, it's the place where we, we care about it almost the most. I think there's another inspiration, which is on a small scale, people can do things proactively, specifically around the environment and sustainability. 
and I was really impressed with an initiative that a Paris-based accessories company came up with. It's called Le Fleur. And they did a small effort, but I thought it was a really great effort to say, you know, there are leaders of companies like ours, meaning Le Fleur. They are very aware of sustainable materials and they use cork and they use things that are replenishable as opposed to plastics and leather. And so they identified other vendors and created a, a very small ecosystem of other vendors with complementary products. It's a start. It's a great way to put their values right out in front. And so to me, there's ways that in FinTech, in financial services, all across the ecosystem, we can do these things to show our values in our actions. So tell us what are some of the great potential applications for ecosystem strategy that are particularly relevant for financial incumbents or for fintech startups? I think that there's a great example of a project that I was involved with in Japan with a, a company called Sumi Trust. It's a, one of the largest trust banks in Japan. And it was really clear, you know, people talk about the unbanked, but the unbanked never, it's not that they've never heard of a bank. I mean, people are unbanked for very different reasons than people are banked. It's really important that we not take a one-size-fits-all approach to the quote, unbanked. And so Sumi Trust, which is an incumbent, and had a, basically, you know, a product and customer mindset around their, their um, services. They decided that they wanted to approach a younger demographic. And this younger demographic of, of you know, middle class to, to you know, people with some means to invest were not buying the products that Sumi Trust had to offer. And they were interested in blockchain. And they were interested in the ability to perhaps invest in real estate in this, in this case with, in, with fractional ownership. Well, there was no product like that that Sumitrust had. And so instead of saying, we can't do that, the leaders said, how could we create an ecosystem of trusted, not just suppliers, trusted co-creators to offer this opportunity to our customers or our potential customers to meet this unmet need? And so what they did is they knew they didn't have the talent in-house. They went out and worked with a combination of startups and other vendors and some partners and co-created an offering that was tuned to the needs of this younger demographic. And so not only did they get younger people as new customers, but they invented a whole new product line. And it was really inspiring to see this. And I think everyone who's in business now in fintech in digital leadership can do exactly that. You know, rather than thinking what product can we uni uniquely present ourselves, how might we find really great partners, establish the trust and the co-creation to develop something that taps into a need that isn't met yet, that takes away the friction, and that offers something that brings people into the fold for the first time. I will never forget an interview with a 30-year-old who hadn't banked before. And we said, well, what do you do with your money? And he literally said, you can probably guess, I put it under my mattress. Now, yeah. that's not okay. You know, the bank realized that was the big wake-up call, that if there are people putting their money under their mattress, there was a big opportunity for the bank to serve them in a way that was more secure than a mattress. And that authentic desire 
was what fueled the ecosystem play. Andrea, tell us more about your residencies. You mentioned earlier that you've done several residencies in Europe. Tell us what do they consist of, of and uh, what Nordic companies do you have your eye on at the moment? Well, what's great to me is these residencies are a way for us to go beyond like a workshop or a sprint and really solve real problems and get people inspired to go through a full process of envisioning what, where they'd like to be all the way through to activation. And what that means is, you know, we do it either as a collab with multiple companies like an incumbent plus some startups so that we take on some big idea like how might shopping be shifting in the future and then lots of players can play in that realm. Um, but we also do it with individual companies. You know, in Latin America, we've done it with Da Vivienda and Seguros Bolivar and companies that are, you know, in Mexico, we've done it in, um, you know, in, in smaller groups. And so in, in, in the Nordics, what I'm looking at right now, you know, there are moves that are being made, like Klarna um, is really interesting. I know during COVID, there was a buy now, pay later approach which allowed a lot of people to be on a shopping platform with an opportunity to put their payments off till later. And it turns out that if you're not on a platform like that and you have that need, you don't want to play the game. So it, it's a way to get retailers to all get onto a platform together. It's similar to what Shopify, a Canadian company and Google did, where Shopify wanted to enable a lot of vendors to be able to have kind of a seamless transaction. So they, t Shopify teamed up with Google to address specifically the smaller vendors that weren't served by Amazon and find a niche market. Once again, they fed and served an ecosystem with a bit of a payment play. And I think that's really, really critical. I look at the Finnish company Walt, which is enabling a gig economy and especially during COVID, when this whole new future of work came into reality, it was really important to have platforms that are able to support people as a software. You know, you think about DoorDash, you think about gig economies. I'm working right now with Upwork and a way for a lot of people who are in this new economy, this new world of work to all be served by a platform. And I think that as the Nordic companies who are always ahead of the curve when it comes to in understanding the sustainability, understanding worker rights, understanding the work-life balance, understanding the importance of all of the issues around resources, and also understanding trust and cybersecurity. It's really a great time for Nordic companies to take the lead in these critical platform developments and these critical ecosystem moves. And just to, just to finish, Andrea, can you tell us what other disruptive trends are coming out of Silicon Valley that you have at the moment within your radar? I'm going to say something that will surprise you because you know that I was just at Singapore Polytechnic and I did a presentation on all of the risks of getting too involved with the digital, fidgetal world. And yet, I am watching virtual reality. I am involved in projects and I'm watching this take off in ways that I had never anticipated. And when I talk about building and activating, I mean, people are building and activating. There's a course at Stanford that was taught in the fall on a virtual reality platform. And so I think that we've gone beyond the sort of, you know, cool goggles and playing games 
into the place where, you know, it's the, it's the next way that we will feel natural. It's the next way that we will have perhaps in the beginning an uncanny valley, you know, that creepy feeling of am I interacting with a robot or am I real and what's this avatar that Chris has and am I myself? I think it's, I think it's here to stay and I think that we will be interacting in ways that are well beyond what Second Life was years and years ago in ways that are going to feel very seamless. Indeed, we're seeing a lot of excitement surrounding the idea of the metaverse and we're keeping a very close eye on how this is developing. Andrea, I can just say that you've given us so much to think about and to process. And I'm sure I will look back at this clip over and over because there was just so much rich content within it and I'm pretty sure our audience will want to do the same. So thank you for giving us so many thought-provoking ideas to think about today. Thanks, Chris.